Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the M&A Source Podcast. I'm Lamar Stanley, and I am a director with Lead Capital Partners, a healthcare-focused private equity firm based here in Nashville. And today, I'm joined by Joel Redman and Kalima White from Key Private Bank. Welcome, Joel and Kalima. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to have you on, and I wanted to get you two specifically on the pod because I know that you're experts on a topic that a lot of intermediaries get questions about all the time because it's a topic that affects, frankly, any business owner that's looking to transition, and that is tax reduction or strategies for business owners to conduct the most tax-efficient business transitions that they can. And that's the easiest way, frankly, for them to put money back in their pocket when there are so many variables around selling your company and negotiating with buyers. Um, you know, the, the taxes theoretically should be simple, but I'm afraid that during this discussion, we're going to find out that might not be the case, but at least people can know what the best strategies are. But enough talking by me. Uh, Joel, if you want to kick us off, give us a little bit about yourself and maybe about the practice, and then I'll pass it over to Kalima as well. Sure. No, happy to appreciate and appreciate the opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to talk today. So my name is Joel Redmond. Uh, I serve as a consulting director for Key Family Wealth's Business Advisory Services Group. And Business Advisory Services is a unit inside Key Private Bank's kind of ultra high net worth unit, if you will, that helps private middle market business owners assist with every aspect of their transitions. And we work with owners who are five years away or more from even contemplating a transaction to owners who are smack dab in the middle of receiving an unsolicited offer to owners who just sold and are scratching their heads saying, wow, I really could have done a better job with my tax planning prior to sale. Um, is there anything you can do to help me? And we are a group of about a dozen uh, tax lawyers, accountants, corporate finance types, analysts, uh, spread throughout the country, you know, a couple of us in the Western, you know, part of the country and quite a few of us kind of in the East are managing directors based out of Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm out of central New York and we've been, the aggregate team has about almost $10 billion of transaction experience. And again, that's, there are deals we've worked on that have gone to investment banks, including our own investment bank, key bank capital markets as well as you know, five or 10 or $20 million businesses that kind of are the machine and tool shop next door. So, and everything in between. Um, and so it's been a, uh, it's a fascinating job because if you've met one business owner, you've met one business owner. <laughs> right. And you have this incredible array of mending together the personal and the business balance sheets, you know, which, is, uh, which is fascinating. Um, and one of the really, probably the true competitive advantages of the group um, is where I'll pivot and uh, talk to or point to my fellow uh, director here, Kalima White, who is pretty much at the operating helm of our Delaware Trust Company. So Kalima, please. Mm -hmm. yep. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, Lamar, as well. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. Um, so like Joel said, I am Kalima White, and I'm a senior consulting director, and I'm also a Delaware Trust strategist, you know, for um, Key Family Wealth Business Advisory Group. And so, you know, I work closely with our Delaware Trust Office, um, which is key national trust company of Delaware, you know, offering, you know, what we're doing is offering help to business owner clients, you know, building proactive business transact transition strategies, as Joel mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, and developing personal and business tax and trust plans um, pre and post sale as well. Um, I'm a former practicing recovering attorney, as I like to say. Um, and yeah, and so I've had like, you know, 20 years of experience working with um, clients, high net wealth, high net worth clients. And I'm also, I'm um, have been very involved in um, integrating our M&A practice with our Delaware trust practice, which is very important, which we'll talk about because you sort of, you can't do the tax planning without some type of trust planning too. Yeah. Uh yeah, no, completely agree. And that's a good place to start um, because that is that begs the question, 
a lot of times when we're talking about this topic, and it's a somewhat facetious question that I'll ask you, but you know, the tax is the tax. So why are we leading with this? It seems like there are a lot of other parts of a transaction that we could be talking about. But is that the case? And and since it is not, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think uh, you know it's a great question. The tax is the tax, right? Um, on average, I mean, one of the things we find is that in this space, when someone is selling either the stock of their business or more often in our space, because we're dealing typically very often in that lower middle market sales of 5 million to maybe 50 million, maybe hundred million, those deals tend to be asset sales where you have the owner of an operating business and the purchasing entity, whether it's an LLC, a pass through or what have you is buying the assets of the, the target corporation, if you will. And so that usually results in an aggregate tax bill of maybe 25 to 35% for these transactions for the selling uh, selling owner. And by the way, that's one of the things we didn't point out. BAS is primarily, we do most of our work on the sell side. So most of our advisory work is sell side, meaning we're advising and, and uh, coaching owners who are selling interest in their business. You know, there's the buy side is kind of a separate side. Most of our work is sell side. And so, our goal, one of our mandates is to try to reduce that 25 to 35% by 5% or 10% or even more in some cases, if it's far enough in advance and we have an owner with the right sort of set of circumstances, we might be able to get that net tax levy below 10%. So philosophically, you can go back to what th uh, things like Judge Learned Hand have said when you, know, you don't have an ethical obligation to pay more taxes than, it, than are due. And so we, one of the, the, the mandates that we have is we want to make sure that owners are able to basically get the fruit of their lifetimes of labor. A lot of the businesses we're advising on are first or second or even third generation family businesses where someone else took out a loan and basically spent 20, 30, even 40 years working 50 or 60 hour weeks or more building this, this operating enterprise. And so you go through all that time and you go through all that sweat and pain and all the things that business owners go through. And so to throw that away in one moment or one bad transaction, it's almost like it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, some of the systems in parts of the world where your entire future is determined by one exam on one day in your life. And that's it. Like whatever you becomes of you after that depends on you, how you perform on that one exam. That's kind of artificial in respects and it's unfair in many respects, but we're trying to make sure that these owners are very, very ready for that exam by preparing in advance. And we can often help them get, you know, to that point where they're, they're no longer paying an aggregate 30% of tax. They're paying 20 or they're paying 15 or they're even paying 10. So it's very possible. And your point earlier that you made Lamar, which is a fantastic point. Um, there's all these other variables that can affect deal value, right? I mean, there's things that the owner thought they took care of on the operating side, and they didn't, you know, maybe they don't have the CFO they really should have. And so the buyer is now trying to knock down the purchase price because of that. Or maybe there's a customer concentration issue, or maybe they're over leveraged or you name it. All of these points, you know, become negotiating points to try to get the buyer to buy lower. But, and there's other even macroeconomic factors that are making it more difficult to do deals. I mean, what have interest rates done? I mean, interest rates are, are going up, which means deal financing is getting more difficult to do. And so you combine all these things, what variable can you have some reasonable control of that really doesn't have a heck of a lot to do always with the buyer or even with the operating characteristics of the business and it's tax planning. So huge, huge, it's very possible. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we wanna lead with that, that we wanna lead with tax planning is frankly, because a lot of intermediaries, their main goal is to get maximum consideration or to get the certainty of execution, speed of execution for a deal. They wanna make sure something gets done and they wanna make sure that this person, they solve the problem for this owner by getting them maximum dollar. That's fine, we wanna help them keep maximum dollar. So right. I think that's one kind of distinction, one area where BAS can fit in nicely. Yeah, and that's great perspective. I actually, you know, we say it a lot, but it's an interesting analogy that you make about being judged on one moment and, uh, and we say, the part that we say a lot is, you know, these owners only get one chance to sell their business. And to your point, that preparation is, is critical. And I've had the benefit of actually look or seeing you all's presentations before. And 
you mentioned this as the cornerstones, the, the four cornerstones of, of these techniques. You've talked a lot about the first. I'll pass to Kalima to talk about the second cornerstone, and that's really about the state, local, and the investment income taxes. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what Joel was saying was very, you know, important in the sense of, you know, what we're talking to our clients about when we're consulting with them regard to, you know, business transitions in these um, sales is, you know, one of the most important questions is what tax planning strategies are available sort of before, during, and after a transaction, right? Because like you said, the taxes are not just the taxes. There are some things that, you know, we can do and our group can do, you know, to assist and to help with that um, tax reduction on, you know, the income tax side, which, you know, Joel had talked about a little um, as well, um, you know, making sure that they are able to maximize the proceeds um, as well. And so, you know, and we can do that on the federal side, right? And so with some income tax planning, but we really can't do too much income tax planning, um, you know, if we're really late into the sale. So the, the, right. the, where we are closer to the you know, sale, two, three, four, five years, um, you know, before the sale, that is definitely a better situation to be in um, for income tax planning. Um, and especially with the state income tax planning, you know, as well. I mean, we're in the situation of looking and trying to ensure um, that we maximize those types of um, you know, of, of avail available um, strategies as well. So, okay. and we can, yeah, and we can do that, right, by, you know, doing things, you know, like setting up different types of trusts, right, talking about some, you know, charitable remainder trusts. We can do that as well. One of the things we can do with state income tax planning, um, a lot of clients and a lot of business owners have created trusts already, right, in different states. Um, one of the things we do quite often is to migrate and move those trusts that sometimes hold those closely held business assets, right? They hold those assets in that um, in those trusts in different states, and we can migrate and move those trusts to um, state income tax friendly jurisdictions like Delaware, and be able to um, save income taxes when the the business is sold as well. So. All of those different strategies, and we can, you know, we can talk about it. We can be really complex about it, right? Talk about Delaware incomplete, you know, gift non-grantor trust, things of that nature, what you call, you know, dings and things of that nature. But all of these types of trusts and all of these types of trust structures are things we can do to, you know, really put ourselves and put our clients in the better position to be able to, you know, reduce state and reduce state income taxes, but you know, all income taxes on all levels. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to get into those details, and we're going to. <laughs> I want to ask some for some examples, uh, just because I do feel like that's what people come to this podcast for. But before I do, I do want to get through all four of the the cornerstones that I know I've heard you all uh, talk about. And the third, I recall, is estate freezing and transfer techniques. So, Joel, why why do you want to freeze an estate? What does that mean? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, Basically, the main reason you want to freeze an estate is you have more than you need and you want to basically do everything you can to avoid what are known as transfer taxes. So our country has a set of what's called a unified transfer tax system where we have three types of transfers of assets from one generation or one person to another that have a wealth tax on them. So people complain about income taxes one of the kind of the stealth taxes out there are the estate gift and generation skipping transfer taxes. So New York state, for example, where I'm kind of broadcasting to you from today has a state estate tax in addition to the federal estate tax. So if someone dies and they have more than a certain amount of money, that certain amount of money in excess of a, an amount set by law, you lose half of it to federal and state taxing authorities. So now the good news is that certain amount of money you have to have before you have a federal state tax is very high. It's just over $24 million today for a married couple. So if you have a married couple, they've got you know, $24 million, they can pass that wealth to the next of kin, their next generation without having a transfer tax. But the bad news is that exemption amount is on it's on schedule to be shrunk, probably cut in half as of January 1st, 2026. So that 24 and change is going to go down to probably 12 and change for a married couple, which really brings that, that levy, that 
tax you know, bill into the purview of an awful lot of private middle market business owners. Today, if you have a, a middle market business and you own it and it's worth $10 million and you sell for 10, 11, $12 million, unless you've got a really rich personal balance sheet, you're not within the confines of that estate tax. You're not really subject to it. If you are, I mean, fast forward five years and you're selling a business for 10 million, you probably will be. And if you have a $15 million estate in New York, for example, and you're under that new regime where it's 12 million is say the combined exemption. And let's say the state exemption is the same as the federal exemption. You're going to lose about half of the amount over that 12. So if you had 15 million, your exemption amounts are 12 million. Well, that means the taxable part of the estate is that 3 million. You lose about half of that. So that's a million and a half clip for a $15 million estate. That's, you know, that's not a flesh wound. And there are clients that have much more than that. And there are situations where, you know, there are things that compound that. Um, And so some of the things that we can do are if we can help people freeze their estates, basically people can use different types of trusts and different types of strategies to exchange a rapidly growing asset for an asset that won't grow very much at all. You know, such as when, let's say someone has a company and that company is growing like crazy. If that company is growing like crazy and mom and dad are the owners, mom and dad can re-engineer the shares of the company. They can recapitalize it. And they could, for example, give themselves the shares that have control of the company and give their kids the shares that have most of the value of the company, as well as the future growth of the company. So they might exchange shares for, for themselves that are entitled to a dividend and that have voting rights, and that those shares will stay flat and they'll get a, a, you know, a steady rate of income on. But all, all the rest of the net income and the profits and the growth of the company, they can gift to kids. You know, they can put into kids for trust or they can do something like that. So that even though the, the, the parents might have enough to live off of with the dividend from the preferred shares, the kids are the ones who are going to have the growth over the long, long term. And so that's an example of an estate freeze. One other quick example, which is a simpler one and a more common one. There's a type of trust that you can set up and some very, very wealthy people have used these trusts. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has used these trusts, Shelley Adelson, you know, some of the casino magnets, some very wealthy people have used these, but they're also lend themselves to very modest estates as well. And with these types of trusts, what you essentially do is you establish a trust of short to medium term. You know, it might be two years, it might be 10 years on the high end, maybe two years, we'll call it. And you put, let's say, money into these trusts. So let's just use an example of a million dollars. Parent takes a million dollars, doesn't really need the million dollars, but, you know, wouldn't mind having the million dollars back, you know, in a couple of years. And so the parent puts this million dollars into trust. And then basically gets what's known as an annuity payment over the next two years from that million. And depending on what the IRS rate is, maybe that annuity is $510,000, $520,000 at the end of each year. Well, by the end of year two, the parents gotten back, call it a million and $40,000. And let's say there's growth in that trust that's left, 300 grand, let's call it, over two years. It was a really good two years in financial markets. That 300,000 can go to the next of kin without ha- or into trust for their benefit, more likely, without having there be any transfer tax on that amount. That's a tax-free gift. You know, that strategy is a granter retained annuity trust by, by way of example. So there's lots of you know, tricks and tools that allow people who need to get assets out of their estate and into their kids' estate or into their kids, into their into trust for their benefit more likely, so that they can avoid not only the gift tax and the estate tax, which are both have rates of 40% over certain amounts you can give, but also another tax that levies on transfers two or generations, two or more generations below, the generation skipping transfer tax. So mm-hmm. there are circumstances, for example, in which you could give a gift to your grandkid, and if it's fully taxable a million dollar gift might only end up being $80,000 in the hands of the kid, just because of the taxes, the combined rates can exceed 90%. So some of these trusts and some of these strategies and and, uh, Kalima can get into them in more detail can be tremendously beneficial for people who want to minimize not only the income tax or the capital gains tax at the point of sale, which is the focus of a lot of business owners, but the ultimate erosion of the wealth 
through these transfer taxes that are levied. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> obviously those techniques require a lot of proactive, you know, uh, activity before the transaction, in some cases during. And But what I also want to talk about is the last of the cornerstones before we move on. And that is the post-sale income tax reduction. So Kalima, yeah. I think this has never happened, but let's, uh, on the off chance an owner sometimes come to you after a sale and says, what can be done? Uh, because we know everyone does everything beforehand, but in the unlikely event that someone doesn't do all everything they should do beforehand, what can still be done after a transaction? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, so like I said, we are always in the situation of advising clients and advisors of, you know, business owner clients, you know, to try to do this tax um, planning for business transitions, you know, in advance, right? Um, but sometimes that does not happen, right? But there are still some things that, you know, business owners can do you know, to be able to, even if they, so say for instance, they have their, you know, business, they've sold it, you know, for $10 million and now they are, you know, they have $10 million, you know, at their bank sitting there waiting. What do they do, right? So that's sort of, you know, the, the part of the planning that we're talking about now where we're talking about, you know, post-sale, um, you know, how can we have income tax and estate tax, um, you know, reduction strategies post-sale. So we weren't able to, you know, save those taxes. We weren't able to save state income taxes, you know, on the sale of these assets because, you know, we are in that state and we did not set that up prior to, but we can do that sort of after the sale with different types of trust planning. And I think that's why, you know, one of the reasons why we find it really important, you know, at Business Advisory Services to, you know, have a very, um, you know, robust relationship with our Delaware Trust Company. Um, and even though we're in a situation of, you know, we have trust service, trustee services in all of the markets that we serve, and we definitely will be able to, you know, establish trust in New York and things of that nature. Um, you know, we look to Delaware as one of our preferred jurisdictions, and we can talk about that, you know, a little bit more. Um, and we looked at that for the preferred jurisdictions, as Joel said, you know, I mean, being able to save on, you know, on income taxes on the state level and federal, you know, state taxes, um, you have to be able to lock those assets up, right? The law, the laws and the government, state and local, you know, state and federal, they allow, um, the trust laws allow for um, people who set up trust, grantors, creators of trust to be able to, um, you know, to, to isolate these assets within this type of a trust structure, right? And be able, and because you sort of give those assets away, you get some type of benefits from that. And that those types of benefits will be, you know, income tax um, savings in some situations and um, also to more like estate and federal um, tax savings. And so, you know, being able to do that, we can, you know, set up different trusts. We can set up trust um, for our, um, you know, our spouses, different trusts like spousal lifetime access trust that we work with a lot, right? A lot of people say, well, you know, I got this $10 million, but I, you know, I don't really want to, you know, lock it all up. What can I do? How can I get the tax advantages, but also be able to get um, assets from it if I need to. Setting up a spousal lifetime access trust helps with that, right? Because it's a type of trust that are, you're able to, um, you know, a, a business owner can set that trust up for his spouse. The spouse can be the beneficiary of that trust. And in that situation, then the, the, the spouse will be able to get assets from the trust to benefit the family. And so you're able to lock up those assets and get that, um, you know, estate tax savings on the continued appreciation. I think Joel had mentioned that a little while ago, right? So you got the $10 million, but at some point you want that $10 million to grow, right? right. To 20, 30, 40, $50 million. And so, so doing this type of trust planning and being flexible with it, right? And being flexible, you know, in the sense of, you know, creating, a, you know, a slat, as we call it, a spouse lifetime access trust, you know, that has all of these types of flexible provisions, you know, in it as well. Creating dynasty trust is something that is very, very um, common for with business owners post-sale. And, you know, and like Joel had said, you know, we're in the situation of creating these trusts to be able to save on um, federal transfer taxes, state taxes, um, GST, general generation skipping taxes for years to come um, by 
keeping these assets in, the, in the, these types of trusts, in a dynasty trust, a perpetual trust that never, um, never terminates. That perpetual trust is able to then, um, you know, be able to benefit the family for generations, you know, to come. And so, you know, without any, you know, need to terminate and therefore never paying that egregious estate tax that, um, that Joel had mentioned a little while ago as well. And, you know, so there, and so for some really big um, clients who are looking to do some, you know, who are looking to sell assets, sell their close to health businesses that are, you know, at a, at a high level. Um, a lot of them are thinking about setting up single family offices as well to be able to manage the different generations. Um, and so that is something that we help clients with, you know, also too. So even though there is no, you know, there may not be a way, you know, to if you've already sold the, the, the business to be able to, you know, save on state income, save on taxes in some ways. Um, there's still other ways to do that with the appreciation going forward. Um, so those are the things that we work with our with business owners with. I get it. And just my biggest takeaway from everything you all have said, kind of going through those four cornerstones, is that you have a lot of arrows in the quiver. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of strategies, and I feel like they're all pieces that could be applied to unique examples. And I think Joel's mentioning of show me one business owner and I'll show you one business owner is is appropriate because it does sound like everyone you know really needs their own recipe but before we get into the specific examples of where you all have used those strategies Joel can you can you talk about how deal timing first fits into all these strategies or how you think about it sure no it's a great question so you've ultimately got three stages uh with a deal right I mean you've got pre-transaction mid-transaction and post-transaction so now, pre-transaction, for the most part, ideally, we're two or three years out um, before the actual deal takes place or more. Most of the strategies, both for the income on the income tax side and on the transfer tax side, um, can be used for the business owner. Uh, you can do things like talk about whether or not a charitable foundation makes sense. Talk about whether a split interest trust could make sense, like a charitable remainder trust or charitable lead trust basically a type of legal planning entity that once you put shares in it, once you put business interests in it, um, part of them are not yours anymore. You retain some type of interest in the trust, you know, in, in one type, you get an income interest. And then at the end of the trust, the charity of your choice gets the remaining interest or the reverse, you know, the charity gets the income interest. And at the end, your heirs or you get uh, an interest in the trust. So, the more complex and ornate and the more um, probably the, the types of structures that require transfers of a more irrevocable nature tend to be the ones that require the longest lead time. So those lend themselves pretty well, you know, charitable trusts and foundations, philanthropic entities uh, and so forth. Those tend to be relatively longer lead times, maybe asset protection trusts and what have you, which Kaleem will get into a little bit more. Um, as we get closer to mid-transaction, we also, we can start to look at um, what capital gains savings there might be out there. And one of the, the, you know, I almost call them first principles. I know we call these four cornerstones of, of tax planning. I almost think of first principles because, uh, you know, having been, you know, seen, uh, Elon Musk, I think is an advocate or, or he's talked about first principles. It's basically the most simple underlying overarching assumptions you can make about something that makes sure you're very unlikely to miss anything big. And so if I think about some of these first principles uh, with respect to tax planning, one of the first ones is don't miss an exclusion that's given to you. If there's a break in the tax code, um, check it out, run it down and make sure that you either do or don't qualify for it. Don't leave it alone. Um, and we'll get into an example of that in a little bit, but one of the greatest examples of that is the qualified small business stock ex exclusion from gain, you know, that's available to um, qualified founders of businesses between certain timeframes. There's a timeframe requirement. It has to be a subchapter C corporation and there's some other requirements, but the long and the short of it is there's a very large and generous exclusion from gain available to certain shareholders who sell their interests in subchapter sub C businesses. Um, under certain conditions. They can exempt as much as $10 million from gain 
on the sale of that stock. So we might look at in real detail and see if we not only might be able to leverage that exclusion, um, see if the stock qualifies for that type of treatment. It's called section 1202 treatment. Um, but we also might see if there might be ways to expand that $10 million exemption from gain, which we'll get into in a little bit. So mid-transaction, we'll look at things like that. We also might look at um, valuation discounts for gifting. We might look at, as we get, probably as we get closer, we're looking at hopefully, you know, parents, if they're willing to gift shares, you know, to kids or to trust for their benefit. Um, they've done a lot of those transfers and we got, we've got a pretty good idea of, um, you know, the, the gift tax valuation of the business. And hopefully that's done a little bit beforehand. As we get kind of post-transaction, um, there's really no more opportunity to structure for reducing cap gains tax. Um, what we do have is we have other opportunities where we might be able to make post-sale contributions of cash, for example, to charitable entities. You know, whether it's on the smaller size deals, there might be bunching that you might do with a donor advised fund, which is where, you know, a lot of people are wanting to maximize the amount of itemized deductions that they take in a given year. And so because the standard deduction hovers around, you know, $12,000 for an individual and about double that for a married couple, you have to give a reasonable amount, you know, to charity to, you know, to eclipse that amount. We'll multiply that by a couple orders of magnitude for a deal. And you might be able to do something like contribute a whole bunch of cash to a charitable lead annuity trust and maybe get a dollar for dollar deduction off of it. So you sell a business, you know, post-transaction, your gain is $5 million your net proceeds or your gross proceeds might be seven or $8 million. If you made a million dollar contribution to a charitable annuity trust, for example, say that was a 20 year trust, you might be able to structure that trust so that you get a full deduction for the entire million that you put in the trust. You continue to pay the interest, the income tax on the dividends and interest that the trust assets generate for a period of years. But then at the end of that period of years, with charity getting a, a, a portion of that income each year from the trust, the remainder could pass into trust for the benefit of your kids. And that amount, depending on the current rates and the return of the investments, a, a not atypical transaction might be, you put a million into this trust, it grows for 20 years, it pays out to charity anywhere from, at the start, about 1% you know, of that million in the first year growing up to, you know, it's significantly more than that by the ending year, maybe you've paid out, you know, four or $500,000 or more to charity, but then the kids might get a million, two million, three. So more than you started with. And that gift, by the way, if it's structured, right, that's a tax-free gift, no gift, no estate tax to that transfer. So there's an income tax benefit that you can get and a transfer tax benefit you can get. And that was post-transaction that can be done with cash post-sale as long as hopefully you have that in the same year of sale, because what you don't want is to miss the year of sale and then have a huge deduction that you can't make use of because there's an AGI requirement. So if you put that million in and got the million dollar deduction, if your AGI is 2 million, you can't take the full deduction because there's a constraint on how much you can take in one year. You know, in that case, you'd be limited to 30% of your adjusted gross income that you could take as a deduction. So you're given the million dollar deduction for the contribution to the trust, but the IRS limits how much deduction you can take in that same year of sale. So you've got some constraints there for sure. I think also if you, as you go kind of post-transition or post-transaction, um, you ultimately wanna think about your apparatus and that's less a tax piece, but there are some tax benefits that could be gotten from that post-sale apparatus. For example, Kalima talked about, you know, very affluent clients who want to set up single family offices. You know, before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, if you paid investment, you know, if you paid an investment management fee on assets that were managed by an investment advisor, you could deduct them. Well, now you really can't. You don't have that opportunity anymore to take as a miscellaneous itemized deduction, your investment expense that you pay for the management of your investment assets. That said, there are certain cases where that deduction for a sort of a passive service might be able to be taken in a family office structure. 
You know, there was a famous case about the lender bagel, the lender case a few years back that basically ultimately allowed a family who was had an actively managed, a person who was actively managing and evaluating investments for the family office to deduct a good deal of that expense and giving them a really a substantial tax benefit. Again, that's not going to happen for most, you know, a five or 10 or $20 million business sale, but you start to get into the upper echelons of some of these sales and, and, and things like that can become germane for sure. Yeah. Well, that I would like to go even deeper. Um, and that, those are great examples, but uh, going back to the pre um, transaction techniques, can either of you give us an example of a specific company actions that you took when, when, you know, before a transaction to, you know, basically make for a tax efficient transaction and kind of give some of the example and result? Yeah, maybe we can go and talk. Maybe we can um, talk about the big one that we have, um, Joel. Maybe you can talk about what we did with the 1202 um, sure initially and then you know i'll go on and i'll talk about sort of where we are with all of the um, entities we set up in that 1202 planning sure well that's great so we said we would get back to this uh yeah. you know with respect to the qualified small business stock 1202 exclusion uh from gain provision yep. and so one of the one of the hidden benefits of this uh benefit or one of the hidden benefits of this provision in the code is that it's a per uh it's per taxpayer so that 10 million dollars there are probably 15 to 20 different types of transfers that the holders of these shares can make that will create additional exemptions from gain. And so the simplest example, now this didn't happen in this case, but I'm doing it just to illustrate. The simplest example of doing that is say you've got a really big company and you hold enough shares. So, so maybe the interest that you sell is worth $300 million. Really big example, right? Huge example. Um, but it, it illustrates the point. Well, it's nice to know that the first $10 million of that is excludable from gain because you've got enough qualified small business stock to cover that amount. Wow. Now, in this case, and in probably a lot of cases, not all of the stock is qualified small business stock. Maybe half of it is in this case, right? Maybe a little less. And so the basic, the idea is if one $10 million ex exclusion from gain is good, then two are even better. And so this person could actually give a gift of shares to his significant other, wife, what have you, make a gift. And now that individual who receives those shares, and there's no tax on gifts mm -hmm. um, to the recipient. So the recipient has no tax on that. Now there's a new exclusion from gain that's created because there's a new owner, a new taxpayer that owns those shares. So now that $10 million exclusion from gain is changed to a $20 million exclusion from gain. Okay. That's a beautiful thing. And is there a limit on the number of beneficiaries or times that you can do that? Well, so you have essentially in this case, this, this client, I'll tell you, we did, I think we've got maybe five by now. So there's multiple exclusions yeah. you can um, use. Yeah. So we have two, two clients in this situation. One, we were able to, um, to use this, this technique and set up what seven different entities um, for this client. And so, and one of you know, those entities in, include, you know, Delaware Trust, include Dynasty Trust, they include um, a family foundation. Um, and so, so yeah, a Delaware Asset Protection Trust, one of the clients, um, one of the business owners, he, uh, he was divorced. And so he is, you know, looking to, you know, maybe get married again. And so he wanted to be able to, you know, be able to protect his assets and be able to, you know, take advantage of this exclusion from, you know, capital gains as well. And so, you know, it's just, it's just easy for us to be able to use all of the different, um, you know, arrows, like you said, in our quiver. Um, to be able to assist our clients. So Joel, sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. And to more directly answer you, so depending on the number of taxpayers, you know, the short answer is no. I mean, if you give that away to, you're not limited as to how many gifts you can give away to others. And so you're not limited to the amount of, now, if you give it to a trust and that trust, that trust has an ID number, right? So it's kind of by, like a per taxpayer. So if you have a trust for the benefit, like a pot trust for the benefit of two kids, that's not two exclusions. That's one exclusion, right? So there's things like that that come into right. play. There. But you can give a gift to a charitable trust 
and have that count. You can give a gift to an incomplete non-grantor, incomplete gift non-grantor trust and have that count. And you can give a gift to multiple other types of irrevocable trusts, you know, including other types of charitable trusts and have those count. So, you know, to Kalima's point, what started out as a potential $10 million exclusion from gain on a total of probably a hundred million or more of gain in this QSBS stock for this client, mm-hmm. probably a $70 million exclusion from gain now. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, and now here's the other, here's another great part. A lot of the states in the union mirror the federal QSBS exemption. So you not only get exemption from the federal capital gains tax, you get exemption in many states, most states actually, I think 34 of them, you get exemption from the state tax level too. So there's, and some of these states, they're pretty onerous, you know, those amounts. I mean, New York levies a 10.9% income tax on its highest earners. So you're selling a business and most people don't pay that because it's over $25 million, but you sell a business for $30 million, you know, you're not only paying the cap gains rate and the net investment income sur- or surtax potentially, but you're paying 11% in New York state. So mm-hmm. it's really, it can be a, a, an enormous benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, and you've touched on this a couple of times, but just to really dive into the topic, why Delaware? It, it always comes up around trust and, yeah. and estate planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we have the preference for you know Delaware Trust is because of all of the you know flexibility you can have in these types of you know with these types of trusts. I mean, for for the most part, for for me and I, I'm you know I've been in the Delaware market for you know many years with um, with trust planning as well. And you know one of the things that you know we always say here in Delaware is it's the court for us, right? So you know the flexible trust jurisdiction you know, in Delaware with the Court of Chancery um, that is very knowledgeable and, you know, definitely has case law with regard to all of these different advantages is one of the, to me, the most important things that um, Delaware um, law can bring Um, because there are a lot of different states who have copied a lot of these different laws, right, in the sense of you know, being able to have a, you know, flexible directed trust, right? The example that the client example we were talking about a little while ago, these trusts that we set up, you know, to make the, the to, to get, take advantage of the um, 1202 exemption from capital gain, you know, these were all directed trusts. We all did those directed trusts in Delaware because they have to, you know, hold the closely held business assets. And in the director trust, you want to be able, you want to have a director trust because you want the business owner to be able, you know, to have control over those assets, those closely held assets, when to sell them, what to do with them, you know, the business owner or you know or someone else that the business owner appoints that is not the, the trustee as well. Um, so you know, when we're doing these types of trusts, we 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 look at Delaware because it is a jurisdiction where we're able to you know have I like to say a smorgasbord, right? Of different, um, you know, tax and trust provisions in these um, in these trusts to be able to maximize the benefits for the client and, and the business owner and for year generations to come, right? In the sense of you know being able to have a self-settled asset protection trust. And this is the client example we had talked about a little while ago. And like I mentioned, the client, um, you know, wanted to. You know, it's looking to sell this business. They're gonna, you know, make a lot of money with with the with the proceeds. Um, but is interested in getting married and may not, you know, be in this situation. Wants to be able to benefit their, you know, spouse as well. But you know, wants to be able to because he has, you know, kids from a prior relationship from a prior marriage to be able to, you know, to isolate some of those assets. And having a Delaware Asset Protection Trust is really good because it's an alternative to prenuptial agreements as well. Um, so, you know, we talked about this a little um, bit as well, sort of, you know, the minimizing state income tax since Delaware does not tax accumulated income and capital gains and trust held for the benefit of non-resident beneficiaries. So if the beneficiaries are not Delaware residents, um, then Delaware doesn't uh, tax any of the income or accumulated capital, or accumulated income or capital gains. Um, so those, all of those different advantages in, you know, that Delaware law has for our business owner clients, I mean, it's really a no-brainer, you know, at this point. But there are reasons why some people want to do trust planning in other, you know, jurisdictions, you know, proximity or however. And so, like I said, we are in a situation at, at you know, KeyBank to be able 
um, to provide those um, advantages in other jurisdictions as well. But you know, we prefer Delaware because we know that we can maximize um, the the advantages that the, that the clients um, have with these types of trusts. And so, you know, so that's why we look at it as the premier trust jurisdiction. All right. Well, that I mean. That there are lots of great reasons, and we've gotten into a lot of those details. But for the for the intermediary who is totally unfamiliar with these topics, or yep. somewhat familiar, but is fielding questions that might be a little bit over their threshold, any advice to intermediaries when they're talking to clients about these things? Earlier is better. Um, try to get some modeling out there. Once you've got an idea, I mean, the intermediaries generally have a decent idea of what the business is going to go for in the market. That's a, that's a benefit because if you have good basis information from the accountant, you can get an idea of what the tax levy looks like if you don't do anything. That's a really important reference point because if you don't know that, I mean, you, you wouldn't believe how many owners go into a transaction not knowing that number beforehand. Right. Um, that's not uncommon at all. I, I was struck when I joined this group two years ago how often that happens. Um, but I think the, so the sooner you do that, the better. And then the second thing is, if you have an enlightened advisor, if you've got someone who knows and understands a lot of these types of concepts, split interest trusts, you know, philanthropic giving, uh, ways to freeze the estate. I mean, some of these other you know, principles that we talk about, you really can't get too deep under into the weeds in an hour. Um, you know, it, it takes a long time to go through some of these things. But if you, if you have someone who's astute in these matters and understands, knows enough that they should be seriously considered and maybe modeled, um, bring the advisory team in sooner rather than later and model some scenarios. And I think part of the reason for a lot of our success is we're pretty proactive. We're very proactive about doing scenario modeling and, and analysis for our clients to show them the expected results of a transaction. And I think we're also good at not being too, you know, we, we can't be dogmatic about the results. We generally say, look, tax counsel is the one who has the final say on how precise these estimates are, but I think the, the, the need or that desire for precision, I think it actually discourages a lot of, you know, advisors from probably doing some of this strategic high level modeling that we do. That's a huge strength because a client, it's much, much better to be approximately right, you know, than, you know, precisely wrong. And I think there's, there's that element that ties into that a lot. So get tax counsel on the, on the phone or on the horn, get the estimate of what the, the outlay is going to be without doing anything. I think it, see if you can find two or three really good ideas, talking to the advisors, see if you can get a model out. I mean, it's a great start. Yeah, definitely. And so one of the things we talk about um, regularly is when a client gets an unsolicited offer, right? You know, as well as, um, so, you know, the first thing we always, you know, talk about in that situation is to just, you know, stop, don't send anybody anything, right? <laughs> right? Definitely, you know, do that. And so, you know, I always want to, you know, we always want to make sure that when we're talking to, you know, advisors, um, talking to them about, you know, that specifically, because I think a lot of clients, you know, don't, are trusting sometimes and don't know that, that that's not something that you always, you know, do. So I think that when we're looking at it, you know, overall, it's the, you know, the psychology of a client, right? Um, you, yep. and, and each one is unique. So you really have to, you know, look at and really determine what the client is, is needing and what their goals are. On that point, is there a book or reference material that you frequently suggest to clients or to intermediaries or business owners? There are wonderful resources out there. Um, it depends on the type of intermediary. If you want something really, really granular and deep, you know, there are books like Practical Laws Guide to M&A. There are things like the Master Tax Guide. You know, there are, uh, there are textbooks out there. If you want something kind of higher level, um, there's a great book by a guy named Matt Coyne called Straight Talk um, from the Trenches. It's kind of a high level, you know, mergers and acquisitions in the private middle markets written sort of towards a financial advisory audience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, Matt is a, he runs an investment banking firm in Eastern Pennsylvania and, you know, has kind of made it a personal mission to educate the retail kind of financial advisory community. You know, the folks running stocks and bonds and stockbrokers and people like that um, about private middle market M&A, just, you know, people who have small businesses or medium businesses and are selling them. So that's actually a, a pretty interesting resource. Um, and, and so I think- Fearless Leader is gonna be having a book coming out soon too, right, Joel? That's a, that's a great point. So there's another book that's gonna be kind of forthcoming 
uh, from our managing director, Jeff Getty. Um, but I will, uh, you know, we'll probably table that until the, the official uh, release date. So stay tuned for that one. That's great. Keep us posted. Um, all right. Well, then in conclusion, anything that our listeners should be thinking about whenever they, or what should they think about, I should say, whenever they're thinking about Keys Business Advisory Services, and also where can they find you guys? Sure. So I think uh, if you could only take away two words from Business Advisory Services, um, and we only had, you know, I think it takes seven seconds for people to make an assessment of you after uh, you meet them for the first time. So I'd say owner advocate. Uh, those words sum it up pretty nicely. We we're on the same side of the table as our owner clients. Uh, we're not incentivized by how many ESOPs we do in a year or how many transactions we close. We don't get success fees. Um, we really want to give them the best objective advice that will help them uh, consummate a successful transition on their time, on their terms, uh, whether that's a sale to a third party, whether that's a gift to kids, whether that's you know, a transfer to an ESOP or charitable trust, whatever that is. Um, and where you can find us, uh, we actually have a key.com has a wealth management segment, you know, where you go, you can hit wealth management on the top of key.com. And what you can look at is our insights. There's a link that says our insights. And then that link will point to business. You know, there's a section for business for, for people that own businesses. You click that link that'll have a ton of our content, you know, and, and links to, uh, to get a hold of us as well. Yeah. Kalima, any yeah. any anything he missed on what to think about when thinking about you all? I mean, you know, I mean, I think for us, the earlier the better. I think that you know, owner advocate, and the earlier the better. You know, the the earlier we are involved, we can you know help clients on you know many different levels, and so I think that you know that really truly is the most important. You know, in it, early 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 planning is most important. And, you know, and I do believe that you have our bios as well. So hopefully you can have your audience that, um, which has our contact information also too. Yeah. Great. I will definitely do that. We'll share that through the MA Source Network. But uh, I know that we are only able to kind of scratch the surface in this format, but I do think it was really informative and you guys did a great job of one, framing the conversations that should be had with business owners and two, just showing the wide range of options out there and why it's important to engage folks like you all on these types of conversations. So thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Lamar. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. It was great. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for the MA Source podcast. If you would like to learn more about MA Source or would like to join, please visit MA Source's website www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about MA sources by annual conferences. Thanks again for joining, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the MA Source Podcast. <laughs>